This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Wicked Queens and Nefarious Princes, the evolution of the Disney villain. So this week we're opting for something a little lighter. Yeah, I mean, our last one was relatively heavy and then there was all the Halloween ones, which I loved, by the way, but they were pretty gruesome. Yeah, they were pretty gruesome. (laughs) Very heavy subjects. Um, and the, and the entire thing about gatekeeping, which is important to discuss, and yeah. then our, obviously our writer's journey, it's fun to talk about. But again, there was a lot of information packed in there. So this time, it's yeah. just let, let's look at something fun. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna look at something fun. We're gonna look at something which a lot of people already sort of know about, and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to maybe shed some light onto some things that people didn't know, or some opinions and ideas, and just generally talk about something which is pretty well known and understood and enjoyed yeah i mean if you've been following us for a while then you've probably already come across our episode on disney princesses so Mm. this takes a very similar format um the difference is obviously that (laughs) with villains for one thing there aren't currently any male disney princesses no (laughs) um but disney is very equal opportunities on the villain front so there's definitely male and female and you know some quite undecided villains in in Disney yeah so that will be a bit different um, and also just as the Disney princesses became more nuanced over time and wanted more than simply a, a romantic plot um, as the timeline expands so do the villains become more complicated or at least that's our theory going in we may actually go back on that as we discuss these but that, that's yeah. where we're generally starting from yeah um, obviously, we can't go through every single uh, <laughs> Disney film, so we have skipped a few um, that don't have obvious villains, and we've stuck to animated feature films, as well as avoiding remakes and most sequels. Um, as we, you know, we've only got a short time, guys. <laughs> we would, I think, we could do an entire week's worth of two-hour podcast episodes if we did every single Disney yeah. film and assessed every one of them, because Disney has made squillions. Yeah, films. they have made a lot. Um, so yeah, we're we're sticking to the ones that I think most people are going to be familiar with, um, and uh, yeah, the classics. So um, we're going to roughly follow this in chronological order and look at whether the villain works for us, their best moments, and by the end, each of us are going to nominate our best Disney villain moment and our best Disney villain song, so. Yes, which is the bit I'm really excited about. I know that's so sad, but I'm like, no. Some of the Disney villains get way better songs than the actual heroes, (laughs) in my opinion. Ugh. Okay, so let's jump right into it, and we're going to start with the uh, 1937 Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Now, I mean, this follows off the very, very classic fairy tale tropes, obviously, and your antagonist is the Wicked Queen, who actually doesn't have a name in this version, Mm. just like she doesn't really in the, the original fairy tale. We say the original fairy tale. The fairy tale we accept is the original, even though it's probably hundreds and hundreds of years older than that. Yeah. But one thing I will say is that by leaning heavily on this trope, whether Disney intended to do it or not, 
they actually created something that really hits home with a childhood fear, in my opinion. Mm. I think it, it grabs you in that, that, that ghost fear place. You know, when, when you're a child and the dark is still an unknown quantity. Yeah. So you've got... And, and also the horrible idea of being a powerless child, effectively, and the person who is supposed to care for you being the person who endangers you. I don't think people necessarily think about it like that with Snow White, but that is very much what's happening. Yeah, it's it's also interesting because, obviously, depending on the version um, with Snow White, she is actually Snow White's mother, or she's a stepmother. And sort of later editions, like, oh, it's a stepmother, it's a stepmother, that, therefore we can sort of, you know, kind of cover up the, the sort of the evilness. Um, but, the, I mean, the, the Wicked Queen in Snow White is actually terrifying because she sees this little girl and she has her killed because this little girl is going to be more beautiful than her. Um, and then she eats her heart, or what she thinks is her heart. I mean, that's yeah. next next level obsessive, you know, bad person. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very disturbing in the sense of, and, you know, the Wicked Queen is actually beautiful mm. in, in the Disney film. And the mirror, did you ever find the mirror really sinister in that? Yeah, I really did, yeah. That mirror is incredibly sinister. And then added to the fact that she's willing to set aside this this beauty in order to ensure that Snow White dies Mm. um, when she disguises herself as the crone. I mean, I remember I would have been about four, nearly five, and Sarah would have been just off about a year younger. And my grandmother, Mm -hmm. my famous Irish grandmother, if you listen to this podcast, I've talked about her a lot, but she, that, that's when she started taking us to the cinema once a year to see whatever Disney classic had come out or been re-released. Mm. And that was the first film I ever saw in the cinema. And we were really excited, with, uh, basically two tiny tots with my grandmother. And my sister was absolutely terrified of the witch. I wasn't thrilled, but Sarah was really, really scared. Even now, if you speak to her about it, she was kind of like, "Oh yeah, I really, really didn't like it. That was a, that was a, that was kind of a coarse or fear moment for me as a child." Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, she is. She's really, really scary. Um, like her intentions are scary, and obviously, you know, she transforms herself in order to kind of to show what's inside. You know, we see kind yeah. of a little bit of a reflection of who she really is, which is someone, you know, because this is the funny thing is that you see her as the old witch is this cackling, you know, person. But as as the queen, you don't see her cackling. She no. doesn't cackle as that. It's like a completely different person. Um, and for me, it always struck me that she she's a kind of a terrifying figure because there's a little bit of her, I think, in everyone who fears growing old or growing obsolete or being taken over by the young so there's something human about her um obviously she takes it very very far (laughs) definitely um so yeah i think in terms of just just pure villainy and leaning on a great archetype Mm. and really managing i mean you know disney kind of hit it out of the park and nobody had ever seen anything like it no one had seen an animated feature film back in 1937 so so on that one yes um definitely definitely did the villain thing yeah definitely so next is the 1940s pinocchio so pinocchio was just actually a god honest terrifying film in, in general 
It really is. And this is not just because Madeline really doesn't like puppets, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure that's part of it, but it's, it's not just that. That is a really <laughs> freaky film. It's a freaky morality story. I don't know if you've ever read the, the original. Mm. Um, but the original is, is even more disturbing, if possible. Yeah, and there are a lot of villainous characters. It's kind yeah. of like it's a narrative about the dark side of the world. Um, so, I mean, we have Honest John, we have the cat, Gideon, we have the coachman, we have the whale as well, who's a who's definitely an antagonistic force. Yeah, although I never felt that the whale was, like, deliberately doing it, it was just being a whale. No, I, like, I was always terrified of that whale. It looked evil. It looked like it, was, they did it make, wanted to do yeah. harm. They did make it look evil. I think, for me, Honest John the fox and Gideon the cat were kind of more sinister because mm. they were human evil if that means i mean obviously they're a fox and a cat but you know yeah they were human evil they're a pair of con artists yeah and one of the things that really struck me about the the pair of them was that you know they they basically play on pinocchio's sympathies and trick him and it was that idea of you can be tricked into doing evil or to be into being bad. Mm. Um, and for a little girl who was being raised Catholic at the time, this was quite a terrifying concept. It, yeah, it is. It's it's the it's this idea that Pinocchio, he's he's a complete innocent, yes, and he, thus easy to manipulate. Um, and in the first instant, Honest John and Giddy and the Cat, they both seem friendly, kind, yeah. even. Um, and yeah, it's the manipulation that's kind of scary and, and the complete lack of any sort of form of guilt or anything like that at all. They, they don't feel guilty. They just take what they want and they don't have a second thought for the lives that they've ruined. And that is, as you say, a human evil. It's hard to think about the fact that there are people in the world who just don't even feel guilty about doing these kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing which struck me is that when you come back to them later in the story, I mean, when you meet them, they're pretending to be um, blind and lame. Mm. And then later on in the story, when Pinocchio encounters them again, but, you know, this time he's wiser and, you know, ignores them, they have actually been struck blind and lame. So it's kind of like, yeah, someone's watching and someone will punish you. Yeah. Um, whereas the coachman, who is the one conveying the boys off to... I can't remember the name of the island now. Is it Pleasure Island? I don't know, yeah. I think it is, where they're allowed to smoke and play pool and And, and gamble and, and become donkeys. And gamble. And they turn into donkeys and they're basically sold into slave labour to work in mines after that. Yeah. And it's just... He is, you know, he's a, a less approachable form of evil, as in that's... that that's He's almost like a representative of, yeah, this is... This is but again, the whole thing's about punishment. It's a morality tale. Mm. So so there's there's less of a concrete antagonist in Pinocchio, I think. But it's more like the world is the antagonist than the ugly, gr grimy bits of the world, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, then we have 1950s Cinderella. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the evil stepmother, who I didn't actually realise had a name... I had to look it up, but yeah, Lady Tremaine. I think it gets said like once in the entire film and then it's kind of like stepmother this and stepmother that all the way through. Yeah. And again, it's the... Yes, you're leaning again very heavily on fairy tale tropes and mm. the idea of the evil stepmother, which 
says a lot about family dynamics from you know several centuries ago doesn't it well yeah again and it's an interesting thing in, in that they i think that the stepmother is it's in this it's in the same that some versions of hansel and gretel they change the mother into a stepmother as well because they don't want to have a, a, an actual mother character who would abuse one of their girls so they say oh, it's an evil stepmother instead i think that there are original versions where it's just cinderella it was just her mother instead abusing her but in the disney version obviously it is an evil stepmother um and i think one of the scariest things about her one of the images which always sticks in my head is the moment where she closes the door and her eyes almost seem to glow when she's in the doorway yeah. um when you know of cinderella's cinderella's room and it was her coldness her complete coldness towards she was just so calculated you know and i i think that's the thing because you know the the character cinderella lost her mother very very early and mm. felt the want of a mother's presence that was the whole reason her father remarried was that to provide a mother as well as you know companionship for himself um and she just absolutely rejects cinderella as a child all the way through yeah so again it's this this sort of this this child endangerment this child bullying type scenario and again it's very human evil it's something that most children can sort of recognize or understand even if they've never experienced it i think mm. but i mean like she's even obviously in the original fairy tale she's even manipulative to her own children as well she yeah. you know she gives them gives puts them in higher regard but it seems to be all in ends to meet her. I mean, in the original, she allows her girls and encourages them even to cut off parts of their feet so that they'll fit in the yeah. glass slipper. You know? Yeah, it's all very much about social climbing and positioning. So this is, I think this is going to be a theme through a lot of these villain characters, but they're the, the worst ones or the ones that we can approach and say, yeah, this is a terrible person are the ones who are devoid of any sort of sense of human love, yeah. even for their own kin yeah um year later we've got the 1951 alice in wonderland uh, queen of hearts not gonna lie alice in wonderland is one of those films that <laughs> freaks me out it um, i remember being equally fascinated and disturbed by it as a child and you know years later i then read the books as well but i think it's the fact that she's been pitched into a world where nothing makes sense and you have to embrace nonsense in order for it to survive, yeah. in order to survive. Um, and then the Queen of Hearts is absolutely bonkers. Mm. And it's that arbitrariness. And I think it's the, you know, she's in some ways she's a funny villain yeah. because she's ridiculous. But on the other hand, someone who can just flip on the turn of a switch like that from being reasonable to absolutely screaming at you and ordering her guards to cut your head off is is an unknown quantity and very, very dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think actually, weirdly enough, the, anyone who's ever been in an abusive kind of household or anything like that... Um, will probably actually find the the Queen of Hearts actually quite scary because anyone who's ever been you know in an abusive sort of any kind of relationship where one minute they're laughing and then the next minute you don't know if they're going to hit you or they're going to sort of give you something 
I mean, that unknown element, it really does put you on edge. Yeah, um, definitely. She's really scary, actually, in that regard, because you, you don't know. You could do, you could be trying everything in your, you know, doing your best effort in order to please her, and in doing so, get her ire instead. And her ire comes in the form of literally cutting your head off. So, you know, that's kind of scary. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we obviously can't go into why Lewis Carroll wrote something a bit like this, but it's very interesting if we do. So maybe we'll come back to that yeah. another time. Maybe maybe we'll dissect Lewis Carroll at some point. Thank <laughs> you for that gross imagery. <laughs> okay, next we have the 1953 Peter Pan. And, oh, I loved this movie as a kid. Yeah, I did. I think it's the idea that magic is that close that you could step out of your window and just fly somewhere where you can stay being the best parts of being a child except obviously the best parts of being a child are knowing that you're provided for and you're safe yeah absolutely. and um you know disappearing off to never Neverland actually isn't all that much fun for wendy because she's just pushed into a different type of being an adult yeah absolutely. i mean her brothers get to have fun but she doesn't really yeah. to be honest no. Um, also because yeah her experiences I think she, you know she's falling in love with Peter a little bit um, but he's not growing yeah, up because yeah. she's kind of on the you know that she's a near enough the same age as he would have been yeah and you know she's kind of you, you're too old you need to move out of the nursery and she's probably about 11 mm -hmm. 11 going on 12 so things are starting to change yeah um, but anyway, we're supposed to be talking about villains, and the villain is Captain Hook. Ah, uh, Captain Hook. <laughs> Who was never scary, um, but there's something a bit pitiable about Captain Hook. If Peter Pan represented someone who refuses to change and grow up and is stagnating in that way, Captain Hook's the other end of the spectrum. Mm. Someone who raced to being an adult and then tried to order the world so that it fitted around them. And in, in that respect, is probably, you know, equally to be pitied, if that makes sense. To be honest, it's... The, as an adult looking back at Peter Pan, like, Peter is actually a terrifying figure. And there's, in some ways, that you can kind of understand why Captain Hook is the <laughs> way that he is. Because Peter Pan is is a real psychopath. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of... I mean, without going off... Peter too much here but I've seen lots of retellings of Peter Pan where Peter Pan is basically kind of a kidnapper mm. and you know the children have some form of like Stockholm syndrome almost yeah or you know some of them end up joining Hook and become the new Hook or whatever and it, it's a battle that has to rage continually there's a lot of potential to absolutely change Peter Pan around I think because yeah it if you think about it your purpose as a child is to learn and grow up. Um, if you're not allowed to do that, then something's gone horribly wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but he is, he's a great, he, he, I think he's a great villain because he's, he's got that sassiness, really. <laughs> you can't escape from, from the sassiness of... What's that? Is that, and also he's the first villain where he genuinely seems to have a real vulnerability and it's the fact that every time he hears the ticking of a clock he thinks it's the crocodile that's eaten his hand. Yeah, which, you know, I can understand why he's testy about it's like, that. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, it, it's coming back for the rest of me, it enjoyed my hand and, you know, that crocodile's out to get me. Yeah. 
Okay, uh, moving on to Lady and the Tramp. I saw this film so many times because my younger sister, who's eight years younger than me, um, I think it it was the time when... God, this is really going back. Some, this is the time when Disney finally started releasing their films on video, on VHS tape. Mm. And the one that Ella was given that year when she was about three was Lady and the Tramp. And you'd say, Ella, what do you want to watch? And she'd be like, Lady and a Tramp. <laughs> so we saw that film to the point where Sarah and I could literally quote the entire film because it was just, we'd been made to watch it over and over and over again. <laughs> um, like I still know the words to all the songs. I bet I could still quote most of the film. I'm not going to go down that route. But yeah, the... Um, the antagonist is weirdly very off screen for most of it. Most of the time, the antagonist is kind of, you know, Lady's confusion with the human world because she's a dog. Yeah. Um, the humans, you know, she loves them, but they don't make a lot of sense to her. Their world doesn't make sense to her. Yeah. But then we have one focused antagonist, which is the dog hating Aunt Sarah, who is dog sitting. Yes. Yeah. We don't even... That's the funny thing. We never see Jim, Deer and Darling's faces, really. We never see Aunt Sarah's face either, really. Mm. It's always just a pair of legs, so a pair of ankles up to the knees, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's very Thomas and Je Tom and Jerry, isn't it? <laughs> In that respect. The only, the only um, alternative is the Italian restaurant owners who are sort of playing the music and serenading Lady and the Tramp while they're having dinner. <laughs> yeah. Which is cute. <laughs> but I remember it's I remember hating Aunt Sarah in this simply because she hated dogs. Yeah. And that would have been enough to flip my switch. So anyone who looked at an animal and, and wanted to mistreat it or hated it. I mean, even though she had her own Siamese cats, mm. it was like the fact that she didn't like dogs, um, and wouldn't you know, she she kennels the lady and puts a muzzle on her and never tries to understand her. And again, this is something that I think children would really identify with, that idea that this obscure force that orders their world, you know, an adult or mm. a human if you happen to be a dog, um, just has not tried to understand you at all. And what you're doing is you're you're desperately trying to say, hey, there's a rat on the baby's cradle. Yeah. You know? But yeah. no one's listening to you. No one's listening to you talking about the danger. So, yeah, I get why children can identify with that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, so next we have Sleeping Beauty and Maleficent. Um, obviously, Maleficent has recently had her own, uh, her own origin story given to her um, with the Maleficent... Maleficent... Uh, can't say it. Maleficent. Maleficent. <laughs> With the Maleficent movies. This is why she wasn't invited. No one could spell no her one name, spell so her they name. didn't invite her to the christening. Like, oh damn it! It's just yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, Maleficent, genuinely one of Disney's more frightening villains, mm. and has all the arbitrariness of that you would expect from the the classic Shea. Yeah. You know, you, you, you invite all... I mean, in the, the original story... I mean, the original story was The Sun, The Moon and Talia, which is absolutely terrifying and horrible. Um, but even the ones that sort of came after that, it was either nine or seven or 13 fairies were invited to bless the child. And then 
the one that got left out turns up horribly offended and it's like well i will give a gift i'll give the gift of death here you go <laughs> the princess will die at 16 she'll be young and beautiful forever <laughs> uh, um, yeah but you're absolutely right it's the chaotic nature of maleficent which i think really works incredibly well um, and she's not just offended and does it and then thinks actually maybe that was no reaction. she's kind of like she's offended and then she's absolutely committed that's it her purpose after that is ensuring that that curse comes about yep <laughs> she's dedicated like, she's to this end in, in, entirely dedicated <laughs> very angry <laughs> but i mean in terms of raw power we've got uh, we've got a range of characters so far and some of them they just have more power simply because of how the world's set out yeah uh, but in maleficent's case she has way way more power i mean she turns herself into a fucking dragon yeah she's so... <laughs> she is literally all powerful she's incredibly powerful so yeah okay 101 dalmatians cruella de vil if there was ever a more iconic <laughs> she's so iconic yeah Absolutely. And again, has her own origin story, which is such a good film, by the way. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. Yeah, I've watched it and it's, it is amazing. It's really, really good. Okay. Um, it, um, but, you know, obviously we're supposed to be focusing on this, you know, it's, it's the origin story of a villain. So, yeah, but you can see how she gets to where she where she does I, I thought it was brilliant it was a very good film anyway 101 Dalmatians Cruella de Vil she's done her villain's journey yeah and um is full-fledged villainy and yeah this is someone who desperately wants to make a dog skin coat and I mean that's the thing is that <laughs> it's what, small evil in theory but when you, unless you're one of the the one of the Dalmatians you know unless you're Pongo or Pedita and then it's kind of like this is this is the the end of the world you know yeah i mean uh, that (laughs) i I think to any child it's just the idea is like hey you know your dog we want to skin it i mean that is gonna have an effect (laughs) yeah not just your dog but your puppy your Your puppy puppy. because their fur is soft yeah so um and no she and she's a convincing villain i think because she schemes she's actually quite smart mm. i mean she does have you know her, her bungling lackeys and what have you yeah um, but she's but... incredibly ruthless she's you know uh, yeah and she feels very real they play into this more with the, the film cruella which yeah. i won't talk about too much but the idea that someone can be so dedicated to something for example fashion Mm. that they are willing to not think about other people's rights other people's you know lives even Mm. which is is largely what this is about so they take that theme from 101 dalmatians and go even further with it i might have to go and see it Okay, Sword in the Stone. So we have a few kind of antagonistic characters, antagonistic forces in the Sword in the Stone. Yeah, this is 1963, by the way, guys. We're in the 60s. We're in the 60s 60s. now. We've we've arrived. Um, (laughs) So we've got uh, Wart's uh, foster father, obviously, um, and his his half-brother, well, his his stepbrother, Sir Kay, um 
who it's very much sort of just like it's it's household bullying it's not even yeah. cruelly meant but it's you know they don't treat him particularly well they don't really pay significant attention to him um they, they don't understand him at all they don't yeah. understand his curiosity or the fact that you know he's a small boy and needs a little bit more than he's been given yeah um so yeah and then obviously we we do, we have madam mim <laughs> yeah who doesn't love madam mim and the wizard's jewel no matter what you think about the rest of the sword and stone yeah that wizard's jewel yeah <laughs> I, it was brilliant that was so good i love that whole fight i love it because I mean, she cheats, she sets the rules and then she unashamedly cheats and it's really funny and it looks like she's got the upper hand a few times and then Merlin just outsmarts her. Yeah. It's like, no, I haven't vanished, I am a, I'm very small, I'm melagolitomopterosis. Yeah. And turns himself into a disease, which is an absolute fucking masterstroke. Yeah, it, it really, really is. And he never breaks the rules. She does, he doesn't. Yeah. Um, it's just a great but i think that that's you know that's the hallmark of 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 a good villain sometimes or or the the villain that you know you definitely don't want to root for and they say oh yeah these are the rules and then they break the rules that's when you know that you don't you you don't even respect them at that point yeah i I mean i think the thing is they they will break the rules because they don't make any pretensions to having honour or anything like that whereas they expect you to play by the rules because in order for you not to be a villain you have to play by honour so it's interesting it's quite a a black and white way of looking at things but we're looking at sort of you know 60s children's film so yeah it kind of makes sense anyway it's it's based on the book by T.H. White isn't it Mm, yeah and um, yeah it's it's kind of a fun Arthurian retelling it is um, with some glaring, <laughs> glaring accuracy. <laughs> Just gonna like like the fact that the voice actor for Arthur is American, but we're gonna put that. We're, we're gonna skip that. Yeah, we have to just get over this. I well, think you know. No, well, because the thing is, I didn't know that was a thing because the first time I saw that movie, it was in French. I, I saw it in French. To be honest, so he had a French accent. Well, then. no, he didn't have a French accent. He was speaking in French. So yes. <laughs> Um, which still, to be honest, was more accurate, <laughs> potentially. Since parts of France were actually part of, of the, you know, Logue at the time, then yes, yeah. it technically was more accurate. <laughs> anyway, yeah, um, I I do really enjoy the Madame Mim part, but yeah. it, it's one of those weird ones where, again, you kind of... There are times in that film where even Merlin's the antagonist. Mm. Or even Wart's own desire to become king. Or, you know, he doesn't have a desire to become king. He find, kind of feels trapped. All he wants is adventure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a fun film. But um, I think it's one of those ones where it's got some really great moments. But overall, maybe it's not the best. Yeah. Okay, so next on the list, we have the 1967 The Jungle Book. Um, and obviously we have two very prominent uh, bad guys in this in the form of Shere Khan and Ka the Python. Yeah, see, I think Ka kind of just wants to eat Mowgli. Yeah. And he's a python, so yeah, Relatable. it's his nature. Yeah. <laughs> um, Shere Khan is slightly more complicated. Shere Khan is this 
you know, amazing and beautiful tiger as tigers tend to be, mm. who has turned man-eater. And I'm pretty sure I'm correct in saying that he was the reason that Mowgli's parents died and Mowgli was left abandoned in the jungle in the first place. Yeah. He's certainly the, you know, all, the wolf pack that raises Mowgli, um, Baloo the bear and uh, Bagheera the panther, they're, they're all kind of like, no, stay away from Shere Khan, you're not ready for that battle. Yeah. And he is the person that um, Mowgli has to stand up against at the very end. Yeah. Um, but I think it's the fact that Baloo, who loves Mowgli, gets in the way of Shere Khan and it looks for a moment as if Shere Khan has actually killed Baloo. Yeah. And that was, uh, I don't know, that was kind of a key moment for me as a child. And then right after that, Bagheera is saying, man hath no love as, as he who lays down his life for his friend. Mm. Literally a direct Jacobean Bible quote. And I was, that really, really struck me. I think I'd have been about seven or eight, maybe. Mm. Yeah. Again, fun. Trip with my grandmother to the cinema to see this when it was re-released. Ah. <laughs> uh. Okay, so our next on the list is the Aristocats, and obviously that is Edgar the Butler. Um, <laughs> this this is great. This is I can't remember the name of the lady, um, the Duchess. No, it's the lady who has the I can't remember her name. But there's Duchess and her three kittens, and the lawyer comes in because you know that their, their mistress is is feeling that she ought to update her will yeah. and Edgar the butler overhears the fact that you know everything is being left to this lady's cats until yeah. they die and then everything is to go to Edgar after that and of course Edgar's kind of like well I could make that chain a lot shorter by getting rid of the cats yeah <laughs> because yeah he's just had to be serving these cats <laughs> I think he kind of is also I, I don't want to be employed by four cats this is not okay yeah where are my protections <laughs> um, so yeah but, and uh, obviously he decides to uh, to try and get rid of the cats um, and they go through all sorts of things in the uh Again, it's a little bit of the human world as well sort of gets in the way as they're yeah. trying to sort of navigate the human world. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've always liked Thomas O'Malley. Yeah. You can't help it. You can't help liking Disney's rogues. Yeah. Disney's rakes. Disney's rogues. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of ridiculous but again, as a child, that makes perfect sense. The idea that a butler would get rid of the cats and you should be rooting for the cats rather than <laughs> thinking, well, maybe the butler kind of had a point. <laughs> yeah, this old lady was crazy. But though, I mean, to be honest, if he was still going to get it at the end, like, just just take care of the cats. Just take care of the cats, guys. <laughs> Seriously. Anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> That's a that's a fun song. Um, sorry, not a fun song. I'm thinking of everybody wants to be a cat. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so next, my favorite, my favorite, the 1973 Robin Hood. Yeah, Ugh. no matter how many times I rewatch, I mean, I haven't rewatched it for years, but every time I rewatch it, it's kind of like there's still something there. There's still something there. It just captures your heart, doesn't it? 
Yeah. And obviously we have some pretty we have well there's there's two main villains obviously in this and that is King John and the sheriff of Nottingham. Yeah. Um and obviously you know there are the sort of the petty villains in the forms of the guards and the advisors and stuff like that who are obviously working and for for King John and the sheriff of Nottingham but they are the two main antagonistic forces. Um and I love the way that they're portrayed because you've got King John who is obviously this complete tyrant but he also you can't even respect him on any level because he's this complete coward at the same time yeah he has no sense of you know dignity no no real sense of sort of i don't i don't like i don't even know how to to explain it like sometimes you can still sort of go yeah i respect the the way this character is i I totally hate them but at least they've kind of got a moral code at least they've kind of you know got a sense of conviction Um, they've got direction yeah he's kind of like a spoiled child isn't he he is yeah he is um I think what gets me about King John is, yeah, he's, you know, he's just d- utterly despisable mm. right up until the point near the end where he switches and genuinely embraces being a tyrant. And that's when he's kind of like, well, we'll, we'll arrest all of them then. And, yeah. he, you know, he's got the, you know, the little rabbit family yeah. tra- chained to the neck and being trooped into prison. And yeah, and it, he's even gone so far that the Sheriff of Nottingham's kind of like... um okay i think i think maybe you've lost it here kind of thing yeah but... <laughs> the, the sheriff of nottingham played by a wolf um who is really just about i'm just going to tax them and tax them and tax them and get rich off the proceeds which you know did actually kind of happen with certain sheriffs yeah during and... that period of history yeah he was definitely but... enjoying himself and you know it's the things like stealing gold from the stealing coins from a blind man and stuff like that you know yeah um and just sort of generally just bossing people around town and being genuinely unpleasant. And again, there's something approachable in the way of the Sheriff of Nottingham in terms of we recognise this kind of villainy in the in the day to day. And then yeah, King he's John, a, yeah. He's the playground bully, isn't he? He, he in, is, he really In is. which case we, we all really enjoy watching him get slapped down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so next, uh, the 1977, The Rescuers, um, and we have Madame Medusa. I mean, what a name. Confe- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is obviously set in Devil's Bayou in Louisiana, mm. um, which I don't think I really knew as a child. But it's this, it's, it combines a sort of pirate story with a child kidnapping story which you know if you watch it as a child that's actually really really frightening the idea that someone will come in and just take you out of your bed one night yeah and and put you you know i mean in her case it's because she's small and she'll fit down the gap where this diamond is supposed to be mm. but being forced down into a dark cave which regularly floods with water to look for something yeah that's really really scary stuff mm. for a kid um I have to also say a little sidebar here, but my first original and probably most intense ship was Bernard and Bianca. (laughs) (laughs) I just love those two together. I think they they jive off each other really well. Mm. And, you know, Disney plays into this whole thing where it's the small and the weak and the apparently helpless who come in and save the day. In this case, two little mice. And everyone laughs. Everyone's like, two little mice? Two little mice are doing this? And, yeah. and they're so sort of inspired by these two little mice that everybody else starts pitching in saying, you're right, it's not right that a child's been kidnapped and is forced to do this stuff, which yeah. will help, kind of thing. Yeah. 
how a small how even small someone small can make a big difference it's it's actually really yeah. nice and madame medusa is just again a very relatable kind of evil an evil that exists in the world yeah and we because we see her largely through penny's eyes she's kind of like she's got that sort of caricature cartoon-esque type thing that you see in adults where you don't understand why the adult is engaging with the world the way that they are hmm. um, why they're so obsessed with something um, if we saw it from Madame Medusa's perspective it would all be kind of like well I can restore my, my fortunes or whatever with this one diamond I must have it it's, it's loomed large in her mind Yeah. but when you look at it from a child's perspective yeah what she wants is insane it's like <laughs> why are you doing this this makes no sense look at all the jewels I've already brought out yeah Uh, okay, all right, so next um, on our list is the 1981 The Fox and the Hound, Amos Slade. Who I hated because he wanted to shoot the fox. That was, <gasps> that, was, that, was, that was the level of nuance I was at as a child. That was kind of like, okay, you hate foxes, you want to trap them and shoot them. Um, I don't like you. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, as an adult, there, there are times when you do have to shoot foxes sorry um particularly if you keep chickens or something like that but i think it's the what they t sort of tap into with the fox and the hound is obviously the friendship between copper mm. the foxhound and um todd who is obviously a little fox cub and the two of them being friends and growing up together and i i was always really struck by the end because they're kind of pulled up you know it's it's not Romeo and Juliet in the sense of, you know, a romance, but it's kind of like two people from two different worlds, from two completely different backgrounds and perspectives, and their friendship is discovered and they're pulled apart, mm. and yet you can't change the bond that's been formed between them, to the point where at the very end, um, Todd does something which stops Slade dying, Yeah, and then when Slade levels his gun at Todd... Copper, his own dog, steps in front of the gun and, and sort of dares him to go ahead with it. And so, you know, Slade won't shoot his own dog. Yeah. And it, it was that sort of like, I'm willing to die for my friends type thing, which again sort of struck me as a child. Yeah. I think for me, because I watched it when I was a little bit older. And again, I watched it in French. Um, it To me, it was, you know, it, it was just... And I could see it as a metaphor for kind of for bigotry, for for yeah. racism for any of these things and Amos Slade was terrifying because he was a man who was so caught in his own convictions absolutely convinced he was right and no yeah. one could change his mind yeah um to the extent that actually he didn't know that someone something or the his dog you know that he was actually hurting his dog because it never even occurred to him that this fox could be worthy of living you know yeah um which, you know, yeah, I understood kind of what that could represent in terms of, of sort of the human world. And so, yeah, Amos Slade um, was a frightening figure, I think, for me. Definitely. Okay, next. Uh, 1983, The Black Cauldron. <laughs> the Black Cauldron. Um, this is obviously based on Alexander Lloyd's The Chronicles of Prydeen. Which, you know, great series of books. They don't get talked about as much as, say, The Chronicles of Narnia, but they're definitely worth reading. 
um, it's based on the the cauldron of you know from the Mabinogion, the yeah. the cauldron of Bran the Blessed, or Bendigid Fran if you prefer. And I have to say that the actual film, there's bits of the film that really resonated with me as a as a child. Um, and then the but overall as a story, it's kind of a little bit messier than you'd expect. Yeah, in my opinion. However. And I'm sure this has come out in my work, particularly lately. The idea of this evil horned king mm. raising an army. <laughs> and it is the horned king who is the main antagonist in the Black Cauldron. I mean, there were some really frightening visuals in the Black Cauldron. With the Definitely. Um, that, that is something. And, and as, I, you know, as I've just said, OK, spoiler alert, but with um, the book that's coming out very shortly in the Harker and Blackthorn series. Mm-hmm. I've leaned on this this legend a little bit, the, the original legend of the, um, the, the the cauldron of Bran the Blessed. Uh, I won't go into details, but and the idea of the Horned King. And I'm sure that this must have, those visuals must have been in the back of my mind for some of it, because looking back at what I've written now, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see where the influences come from. Yeah, yeah. It's the black, the black holder again. The horned king, in total contrast to the previous villains that you know we've been talking about, who were very human. The horned king is terrifying because he is so unhuman. You know, he yeah, is. He's basically a god. Yeah, he's an, he's this ancient evil, um, and there's this sense of complete separation between you and that character. It's just sort of something on a completely different level. So he's he's kind of like a haunting evil, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you're so small um, and so helpless against him yeah. that it's only through great cunning that you can act, and and personal sacrifice that you can actually beat him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one thing I will say about the actual black cauldron: the black cauldron itself can raise the dead. So if you put a dead body in it, they they'll come back to life yeah which was the whole point that you you could re-raise your entire dead army and basically have an unstoppable unbeatable force because they were already dead which is pretty scary but you know this you know this is welsh myth yeah (laughs) welsh early medieval um mythology they did not pull their punches (laughs) about zombies the rest of the story is absolutely horrific as well but you know if you're interested read my new book Okay, I'll give you an overview. Yeah, seriously, guys, read it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next. um, I love this one. The 1986 Basil the Great Mouse Detective with Rattigan, who was so scary. (laughs) See, I saw Basil the Great Mouse Detective when I was a bit older. I think I was in my teens when I finally got to see it Mm. and I only saw it the once and I don't remember it as well as some of the others so it obviously didn't strike me at such a critical age but yeah I do remember Rattigan being quite terrifying. He is I mean and like Rattigan feeds you know his own men who've who've kind of gone against him to 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 the cat yes you know he's he's like evil he's really evil (laughs) Um, he's um yeah, and obviously he's trying to sort of rule the the sort of the rodent rodent England as it were. Um. <laughs> yeah, see, and obviously the whole thing's a, a riff off Sherlock Holmes, and it's actually a very clever riff off of Sherlock Holmes, I think. Yeah, but what 
kind of struck me is, as you say with Rattigan, he feeds his own men to the cat, is it kind of made me think of um, Brian Jacks, or Jacks? Anyway, whatever. Um, his Moss Flower mm-hmm. series, um, read the Red Wall series. And I read Moss Flower when I was about 10. Mm. And it was really noticeable that with a lot of his villains, they are willing to kill their own men. Yeah. And I think at, at sort of about 10, I started to think, if you're really a villain, this is a standard thing. You're willing to kill off your own men. But it's a really ineffective thing to do if you think about yeah, it. it. Why would anyone want to work for you? Yeah, exactly. You know, very quickly you would find yourself without any without an army. You'd have people yeah. changing sides very, very quickly. But as a child, you may not necessarily reason it through to that extent. You just think, oh, you know, uh, if you're one of the bad guys, you have to go with the bad guys, and bad luck to you. It's kind yeah. of like, oh, well, you worship Cthulhu, but he'll still kill you. He'll just kill you last because you're useful. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> okay. Uh, next, uh, 1988, Oliver and Company. Um, we have Sykes and Fagan. Fagan, obviously, being a very Fagan esque character. <laughs> Yeah, Sykes being a terrifying loan shark in the form of a bulldog. This is basically Oliver Twist, but done with cats and dogs. Yeah. Um, And in that respect, it's quite a lot of fun, as Mm. I recall. I think it's one of those ones I've only seen once, and again, many, many years ago. And it didn't strike me in quite the same way. Um, But, you know, the characters of Sykes and Fagin, as I recall, were quite accurate to what they are like in the 19th century novel. And in the novel, they are genuinely very sinister. Mm. I think the problem is that there's been so many adaptations where they've been dumbed down or played down or made ridiculous. And actually, they're both really nasty pieces of work. Yeah. And it's strange that Disney should get that right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, they do. They're characters who get under your skin. Again, yeah. very human, well, in this case, animal, but very human evil. Yes, yeah. definitely. Okay, next, 1989, The Little Mermaid, Ursula the Sea Witch. Iconic. Totally uh, iconic. This is, I think, one of the main pivot points of both the Disney film itself, but also the Disney villain and the Disney princess. Mm. Things really changed with the 1989 the little mermaid um suddenly you had a more dynamic heroine um the focus was yes it was on her arc which was a love story but it was on her actually doing something to bring that about Mm. um and the the villain was a lot more nuanced i mean you don't necessarily find out what's driving ursula but she's not just it's not just about vanity or anything she she's genuinely after power yeah well i mean i think i believe that there's some kind of thing that she's actually meant to be uh triton's sister i've heard that theory i think it's the fan theory but i think oh, there's okay. also some some stuff some, behind some it stuff as well it. yeah but um that yeah she's uh that yeah she's genuinely after power she and she's smart about it as well yeah she she is and ruthless obviously willing to entrap the sea king's daughter yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, she's you know she also has the classic villain things. She's she's not very nice to you know the things around her. She's she really likes her eels. 
Yeah. She really likes her eels. Um, but she, you know, it's things like uh, she's eating those little fish alive, for instance. Yeah. I mean, I that, that, that's the whole thing, isn't it? She's very predatory. But yeah. I like the fact that, that she cares about Flotsam and Jetsam simply because it's kind of like those little pinches of humanity stop her villain being absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, she cares about what she cares about. She And she's also, I think she's just a very dynamic character. There's yes. a lot of, there's a lot of oomph to her, you know? <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, and I think she does have, you know, obviously we're going to talk about this in a minute, but she does have an amazing villain song with yeah. Poor Unfortunate Soul. She's got excellent charisma. Okay, yeah. next one is one of Jill's favourites. It's the 1990 The Rescuers Down Under. Um, yeah, um, weirdly, <laughs> it's not the most popular Disney film. Uh, uh, to say weirdly, well, it, it, you know, it's... I love it because of the Bernard Bianca thing, so clearly I'm just really weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are various antagonists in the film, but the main one is um, Percival C. McLeach, who is a poacher and he sets traps for animals. And obviously when this came out, I didn't see it in the cinema. Mm. Um, I saw it once it came out on VHS tape, which is how old I am. Um, but he, yeah, he, he in, unlike the rest of Australia, he doesn't really care about conservation and protecting animals and things. Mm. He actually cares about poaching them and selling them and making a profit. Yeah. Um, and the whole thing centres around a boy who discovers a great golden eagle, as in giant, absolutely ginormous. Um, and it's about protecting this eagle. And it's kind of another kidnapping because the boy knows where the eagle is. So obviously yeah. Bernard and Bianca, those <laughs> intrepid rescuers, set off to, to save him. And Bernard's spending the entire thing trying to screw up the courage to actually pop the question to Bianca. There's yeah. a lot going on there and it's 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 all my bag. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, but talking about the village, McLean, the village, the vi- the villain, villain. <laughs> the villain, the village. There is no village. What am I talking about? I just, just don't the, know. <laughs> the villain is, he's yeah, he is horrible. I think, and again, it's that very human evil of someone who wants. Obviously, it strikes me because it's someone who wants to harm animals. Apparently, mm-hmm. yeah, that that goes immediately straight onto my hate list. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that just that that's just in general a very a big sort of thing for children in general. Um, we know they're bad if they want to harm animals. Yeah. So next on our list um, is the 1991 Beauty and the Beast and Gaston, <laughs> who makes a great villain, really. Um, and I think they did a good job in choosing to make him the antagonist next to the beast the beast who is supposedly very ugly but you know pretty much anyone you talk to say they prefer him as the beast rather than as prince adam yeah um but obviously they made gaston supposedly this flower of manhood who is very arrogant and up himself to the point where i don't think anyone's ever told him no and that's a bit subtle for most children but when you get to be a teenager certainly a teenage girl you recognize that so a, a a man who has not been told no enough is actually very dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And he is 
it's the someone said, oh, Gaston's a nice guy, if that makes sense, you know, in inverted yeah. commas. He's, he is, and that is the character he is. He just thinks he can force his way into things um, and get what he wants. And I think that in some ways that there's very much the playground bully element to him, which I think people will recognise. Yeah. Um, but also, yeah, that he, he's just someone who doesn't take no for an answer, and that becomes increasingly kind of the whole that you get i mean once again he's devoid of love for anyone except himself yeah as well which again is contrast to the beast who's actually learned but weirdly that is how the beast starts out someone who is devoid of love for anyone except himself and has yeah. learned through through suffering that actually there is there is a lot more to life than that yeah but he's willing to change gaston is not yeah Okay, next we have 1992 Aladdin, and we have the character of Jafar. Once again, it's all about power and uh, never trust the Grand Vizier. This is where <laughs> never trust the Grand Vizier comes from. It's a bit, it's a bit unfair for Grand Viziers, really, but but yeah. it's become a trope, and I, I'm embracing it. So yeah. I mean, they. I mean, they went full with his design as well. I mean, that's the design of someone who's evil. The, the little curly moustache, the the kind of the long face, the evil eyes. I mean, yeah, um, he is. He's a very effective character, um, and he is. He's just power, totally power hungry, uh, to the point of. I mean, he's already in a, a position of incredible power. Yeah, um, in that he can manipulate this. Um, you know this. Uh, what what's the term? He's not a he's not a pharaoh. He's a the sultan. A sultan. That's it. He can he can manipulate the sultan uh, without difficulty. Um, and it just <laughs> on some levels I can kind of understand because he's like the sultan is an imbecile. Um, but you know if if it was that he had a better vision for the country, which didn't involve so many people being so hungry, etc. Um, you know, I, you might have almost been on Jafar's side, but that wasn't it. He just wanted power. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's... Uh, I, I think this is the first time that Disney sort of delves into a little bit of, of sort of sexuality as well. Mm. Where you have Jafar saying, I want you to make the princess fall madly in love with which obviously the genie can't do. Yeah. But Jasmine kind of plays plays Play, into plays it. Plays into that, yeah. <laughs> in a very disturbing a... way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jafar. And I was like, oh no, that's really horrible. <laughs> um yeah, and obviously there's that the, the final message, which is that power comes with the responsibility, you know. Um, yeah. And literally his pursuit for power ends with him being chained, which I think is so satisfying. It is considering that he was willing to allow the genie to continue being enslaved. Yeah. And it didn't, it didn't or, or anyone, in fact, it didn't bother him. Yeah. Um, he, he was happy to just use people. Yeah. Um, but it's just the idea of that, you know, power, power isn't... There, there's no such thing as absolute power. When you have power, it comes with it. It's there to serve in some form or another. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
yeah I, I i like that film a lot okay next is the utterly scarring 1994 <laughs> the lion king with <laughs> with scar what a villain yeah um great villain great villain song yeah um i like him because he is i i guess it's again it's the ruthlessness but you can see kind of kind of where he's coming from he's been passed over he is the the, the sidelined brother mm. but why does he want to be king well it, it's not for for the great balance and the great circle of life like mufasa for example it's 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 very definitely i want to be in charge yeah um, there was a scene i find interesting that was written out because it was considered inappropriate for a disney film where Scar tries to seduce Mufasa's widow, Sarabi. Mm-hmm. And they took that scene out of the film because they'd obviously decided that's not appropriate for children. But it, it was very literally, I want to destroy my brother and take everything he's ever had. Yeah. Uh, but the way he does it as well, manipulating this small child into believing that they've killed their own father, oh, albeit no. by accident, is is horrendous. It is. <laughs> and, I know people say that's not as traumatising and we haven't talked about Bambi because there's no real obvious antagonist in that except the human race yeah. as a whole. Um, people say you know the loss of Bambi's mother is much more upsetting. I, I disagree. I think, honestly, Mufasa's death is far more upsetting <laughs> because it's combined with guilt. Yeah, it is. It's incredibly... Moving is the wrong word. Um, <laughs> it, it's incredibly upsetting. Um, that scene when he's just also when it's the scene that always gets to me is he goes to the corpse and he's telling him to get up i mean every time every time jules (laughs) yeah oh yeah um and obviously scar has his very you know they've obviously they really sort of screened it as, as very sort of fascist fascist um scenery uh, which is very effective in, and he's he's not a good king. That's the thing. He's not. He's when, not. He's a very bad Mephas- king. <laughs> I mean, yeah. When Mephasa's king, everybody is at least getting to eat, kind of thing. And obviously, yeah. you've got, you know, it, it's the whole world. Well, yes, we do eat the antelopes, but when we die, we renew the earth as well, kind of thing. He yeah. knows that he's got his place. He's not better just because he's king. Whereas Scar's kind of like, no, I am better. Everything should come to me. The lionesses are supposed to do the hunting. Um. There's no food. There's nothing to hunt. He's he's They've he's sort of laid everything. waste to everything. Yeah. yeah, because they haven't maintained the balance. Um, good ecological message there. Okay, next, uh, 1995 Pocahontas Governor Ratcliffe. I mean, they really choose their names, don't they? They really do. <laughs> um, I don't think he really struck me as exceptional in in terms of villainy. But in terms of representing the sort of mindset of a certain set of people, mm. let's be fair. Um, I mean, Pocahontas is not accurate in terms of a historical film. No. What would you expect? They got lots of things wrong. But in terms of just a, a message of respect for various different peoples and cultures, um, that they were kind of on something there. And the idea that, you know, someone coming in and assuming that they can take a valuable metal from somewhere because they've assumed it's there yeah. not realising that the wealth is actually something else entirely mm. um, 
I find it interesting in comparison to knowing more about the history of actually what happened and the fact that if you know the settlers hadn't had guns that the Powhatans actually wanted to use on other tribes then the the settlers would have died out very very quickly yeah um, but leaving all that aside uh, Governor Ratcliffe is horrific because I think he is the one who literally refuses to see the natives the Powhatans as anything other than than savages in his own words yeah whereas with the Powhatans see the settlers as savages right up until the point where Pocahontas says well actually no they're people mm. and her father is wise enough to listen to her yeah in terms of the film obviously not in terms of what really happened yeah the, the history is obviously as you said very very different um, and well worth looking into just heads up guys yeah it's really interesting okay 1996 the hunchback of notre dame judge frollo yeah, this is um, this is one I will come back to. Yeah, but we, we, um, we have to come back to Frollo. <laughs> we absolutely have to come back to this one. Um, they got well. They deliberately chose to make the the Victor Hugo novel completely differently for Disney. I understand why they were making a family film, and that yeah. is not a family novel. No, it's a really very. <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing that they did get right was Judge Frollo. Yeah. The one thing that's almost like from the page to the screen, it's like, ooh. And he's a very, very disturbing character. And I think it's the first time Disney really delves into religious zealotry. Mm, yeah. And the damage that can come with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know, certainly from my perspective, The Hunchback of Notre Dame had a big impact because of the way that Judge Frollo um, was, uh, because of, you know, both both um, Jules and I have had Catholic upbringings. So I think it hit hard then. And obviously, because it wasn't just Catholic upbringing for me, it was French, French Catholic, which is obviously, um, you know, the, the book is set and the film is obviously set in France. <laughs> Um, so there was a lot of, and I think again, the first time I watched it, it would have been in French as well. Yeah. Um, so there was, it, it resonated very, very strongly with me in that respect. Um, I, I really, really do like it. And I do think he is one of the most terrifying, uh, villains. He is because... The, yes he is ruthless and he is cruel but in his head it's i think it's the first time it's so clear that a disney villain believes he is in the right that yeah. he is following god's will that he is a righteous man yeah and that you can't reason with that yeah and i think that is why he is so disturbing yeah i completely agree um as he said religious zealotry um just he's so convinced you know of his convictions um yeah it's really scary <laughs> um and also his, his the thing is i think the other thing with him is he's convinced of his convictions but he has this moment and obviously we'll talk about that a little bit later where he, he, we're gonna he pick wants, the same song aren't we, we are we're definitely picking the same song <laughs> um we <laughs> where he wants he wants esmeralda he wants esmeralda um, and he can't deny the fact that he wants her. You know? Yeah. 
Um, so he does all these mental gymnastics to make it work in his head. Yeah. Anyway, we will come back to we, this. We because... are going to come back to it. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so next is 1997 Hercules and Hades. <laughs> yeah, ignore the Greek myths, guys. Yeah. But otherwise, <laughs> he makes a great um, and rather camp... Uh, he is... co- gay-coded. <laughs> gay-coded. Gay-coded villain. I love Hades because he is so sassy. He I think is. he's the first really sassy villain we get. He is an incredibly sassy villain, and you can kind of understand why he's so pissed off. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, how's the end? Of- well, you know, <laughs> full of dead people. <laughs> like I really pulled the short end of the straw here, guys. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, you know, trademark sort of wants power, wants change, happy to manipulate people and use them, etc. Yeah. And it's just I can't help feeling a little bit on Hades' side, I've got to say. Yeah. I guess like a part of it as well is that we we obviously know what Zeus is actually like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he he absolutely got a, a outstanding PR job in, he did. in the Disney movie. Yeah, they did a great job with that one. Um and Hera as well. I mean, my god, she <laughs> You wouldn't recognize her. You wouldn't recognize her. Not a single bit um but yeah hades iconic i think in terms of char- his whole look as well the flames for her i mean yep brilliant, brilliant. just <laughs> they, they did a great job <laughs> well done guys so next 1998 mulan um and obviously we have the villain of shan yu mulan was the first disney movie i ever saw in a cinema oh my god yeah I'm so old. The rest, um, okay. the, the rest of it, it was all um, VHS. For um, for reference, guys, I saw Milan at the cinema. I saw it three times at the cinema, in fact, because I went to see it, and then I went to see it with um, a, a, a friend and a couple of other people, and then people said, oh, have you been to see it? And I ended up organising a karate, a university karate trip to go and see it at the cinema. <laughs> So I was at university when I saw it. And Were it you was at when university? It just come out. Yep. Wow. Yes, I was at university in 1998. So there you go. That, that <laughs> I was only reference. six years old. <laughs> so Madeline was just about old enough to go to the cinema. I'd been going for many years by that point. I was, uh... I was about 19. Um, okay. So, yeah, Sean Yu, he's kind of... A bit of a, you know, well, it's based on the the ninth or tenth century Song Dynasty poem. We're not really sure why. Mm. Um, written by an unnamed Chinese poetess, um, may have been based on an actual historical figure, and probably wouldn't have featured Attila the Hun, which is who Shan Yu is actually supposed to be. Yeah. But combining all those things, I think it makes for an interesting. Um, kind of villain because the whole point of this guy is conquest yeah um you built the wall ergo you invited me yeah uh, we know historically that's not what happened what happened was the chinese built the the great wall of china and then they invited them in to use them as guerrilla troops and they decided <laughs> actually you've invited us in so. why don't we just take china <laughs> we're on the other side of the wall now oh no <laughs> and 
there's examples of that all through history. The Celts did it, didn't work out so well for them. Yeah, uh, the Powhatan Indians did it, didn't work out so well for them. <laughs> Basically, whenever there's been a big conquest where someone from somewhere else has come in, people have said, oh, you've colonised us. What's happened is a group of people has invited them in first and given them a strong a foothold. Yeah. Um, yes, but ignoring all that, uh, mm. I think he is genuinely quite a sinister character. He is. And he, he kind of almost represents um, Mulan's fears. Mm. as much as anything else what's interesting is that and this has been something which has been pointed out he has absolutely no objections to the fact that mulan is a woman no doesn't care you know when when mulan you know says i you know i was the one who did it and he goes ah the soldier from the mountain he doesn't go but you're a woman or anything like that at all and you know people have pointed out that this would probably have been because within his culture there would have been female soldiers that would have been absolutely fine so there's like in some respects you know again i can't say i respect him but he's an interesting character because he's not he's not a he he's not bigoted if that makes sense his mind is yeah. on one thing and it's conquest and an enemy is an enemy you know he's not he he knows where his own standing um and that i think for him makes him really feel like a like a respectable villain and i use the word respectable like there's any sort of respect i don't respect him but am i making any sense yeah he's one of those weirdly it's one of the disney villains whereby if the film was told from his perspective he wouldn't look like a villain at all because he's just doing what's in his character arc yeah does that make sense yeah Whereas it's like it, some of the others, it would be quite difficult to take what they're doing and make them the hero of the story. Yeah, though, I mean, to be honest, I think the thing that really cements that he's a villain is the child's doll. And he gets yes. the child's doll and he's like, right, well, time to go murder these people. And it's just, yeah, um, I think that that hits hard. Um, okay, so next, 1999, Tarzan, Clayton the Hunter. Yeah, Tarzan was a film that visually I I really liked the change in style and the music was really good. Mm. And, you know, I've got a soft spot for Edgar Rice Burroughs' very dated books. Um, but I have to say, I felt the film should have been better than it was, if that makes sense. I cried. <laughs> Was it when his parents died or... It's the song, you'll be in my heart. Like, how can you not? <laughs> Even thinking about it. Okay, well, moving moving aside from Phil Collins's mellow tones. Yes, um, the Clayton um, the Hunter, he's, again... It's the, the trickery to get to the, the gorillas. I mean, we know gorillas not helpless, but gorillas are pretty helpless in the face of, of modern guns yeah yeah so um yeah and the fact that he manipulates tarzan with his feelings for jane and stuff it's kind of like yeah again very human evil and very grubby human evil mm. i mean it's it's a little bit like you know with atlantis as well very oh, similar to put that down you've, oh my god you've got to put atlantis down <laughs> ah um i ha i'm not as familiar with it but yeah it is you know as you say mentioning atlantis which is a great disney film i don't think it gets disney shouted film. about enough yeah but, um yeah again the very human evil of i've got this one goal i'm after this one thing and i don't really care who gets in my way yeah and i will uh, i will destroy 
an entire society to to get what I want, and I will yeah. manipulate the the more innocent to you know to get to reach my goal. So yeah, okay, all right. The two thousand, the Emperor's <laughs> New Groove, <laughs> endlessly quotable film, very silly, so good, um, and. I don't know, a kind of a departure from Disney's usual fare as well. Yeah. I, the, for those of you who are not familiar, because I don't think it hit as big as some of the others, it, it's a spoiled, um, I want to say Incan or Mayan yeah. emperor who gets turned into a llama. <laughs> Which is such a... I'm just imagining that meeting. Okay, so we've got like the <laughs> spoiled prince. He becomes a llama. <laughs> um, and it it is very funny and it you know it's a departure from disney's usual there's a romance or something going on because you know even with mulan you've got there's a romance yeah. in there in the backstory yeah um this is this is literally a voyage of i need to discover who i am and, and get my crown back yeah um, and the main antagonist is i want to say yisma yeah isma yeah um again iconic um <laughs> you know this advisor who clearly wants to be in power and in some respects again if she wasn't also so evil as in just such a bad ruler and that you know that's your that's your fault you should have thought of that before you decided to be poor kind of person um yeah. you know they would have made it would have made sense because she's basically babysitting this inept child who is just totally spoiled. Yeah, he's he's privileged and he thinks that the world is arranged the way it should be because he's where he, you know, he's in a very comfortable position without ever really asking what he needs to do in order to earn what he's been given. Yeah, absolutely. Which is something we do have a problem with 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 various different rulers and mm. members of parliament and things now <laughs> in my opinion. Yes, quite. So, yeah, it's a great film, actually. Um, okay, uh, 2009, The Princess and the Frog. Dr. Facilia. Yes. Oh. Uh, a voodoo doctor. Yeah. And a play on the frog prince. Yes. And one I'm not as familiar with, so I'm kind of hoping Madeline's... <laughs> Well, I mean, like, again, so in a minute we're going to talk about the best villain song. Um, and I think it's fairly obvious that Jules and I are going to both be talking about Frollo. Um, but Dr. Facilia's Friends on the Other Side was right up there with me as well. Um, he's such, again, this very charismatic character. Very human in that, you know, he's, he's a guy who's trying to get by and has sort of dabbled in the dark arts in order to do so. And he'll do what he has to in order to kind of, well, to survive and things like that. Even that, if that does mean sort of ruining other people's lives. Um, but again, he, he's he's got presence. He's got yeah. great presence. Which I think works very well. And I think actually in some ways, because he's obviously the, the main bad guy, but it's the, the friends on the other side who kind of loom long and deep. Because he yeah. knows that if he doesn't succeed, the friends are going to come and get him, as it were. And they do yeah. at the end of the film. They literally drag him away and it's terrifying. Yeah, that is pretty scary. I mean, obviously I saw it as an adult. But um, <laughs> the whole sort of like shades with their ha their pale hands coming out of Guinea. Yeah. You know, the land of the dead. Yeah. Um, 
is actually really quite freaky. It is. It is. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I, they did a great job with that one. That is a film which is massively underrated. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's some people's favourite Disney film, and I've mm. really only seen it properly once, and then bits and pieces. i really got to watch it again. Yeah. No, it is it is very, very good. I do. I really do recommend it. Okay, uh, next, the 2010 Tangled, Mother Gothel. Who we have definitely discussed a fair bit, but yeah. again, we're back to the... Cla- I mean, this is the first time I think that Disney's gone back to the classic fairy tale trope of, of an adult who should be a caretaker, but is woefully, woefully inadequate and woefully deliberately inadequate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, I think she she hits big because she is a typical abusive parent who gaslights she's constantly gaslighting and manipulating rapunzel to the point that rapunzel actually loves her yeah Um, i mean she's got no basis for comparison really she doesn't remember her real parents yeah and as as we've said before you know she's touched stuff the only time she really gets approval and touch and and the sense that she is cared for is when um mother gothel's literally taking something from her yeah exactly um and it yeah i mean she's she's a great villain yeah i mean if you think about it the whole sort of you you're only feeling like you're you're loved when someone is literally taking something for you that that's a horrible metaphor for childhood sexual abuse yeah absolutely um, and just, I mean, just ju- just emotional abuse. I think a lot of people were hit hard by this film who had been, had had parents who were emotionally manipulative as well. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that whenever, whenever, you know, uh, it's like saying, oh, well, now I'm the bad guy or, you know, um, you know, the manipulating children saying, oh, you're, you're going to kill me. You're hurting me when you, when you suggest these things. I mean, ah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean Rapunzel's whole thing of saying I'm free, I'm free, and then I'm a terrible daughter, I'm a terrible, and swinging between those two things. Oh god, yeah. Yeah, I mean, whew, they did a great job with that, I think. Yeah, they did not pull their punches they there didn't. at all. <laughs> okay, next. 2013 Frozen Prince Hans. I love this because A, he is incredibly punchable, in my opinion. <laughs> But also, you wouldn't necessarily look at him and even think he's the villain. Not because right. he's a handsome prince or whatever, but just because in many ways he's such a non-entity. Because the main antagonistic force is Elsa's struggle with her own power. Mm. But really, he is absolutely pulling strings behind it and making everything so much worse. Yeah, absolutely. And for his own selfish purposes as well. It's just... Uh, he He's basically... An incel. He's the closest thing to a, a, a proper incel I think Disney's ever produced. Yeah. Gaston aside even, because Gaston could have anyone. He just wants the one that, that who doesn't want him. Yeah, absolutely. It, it worked for me, though. I mean, just... Yeah. Uh, Prince Hans, I, I didn't actually see... Well, I sort of, towards the end, started to see it coming. His betrayal coming. Um, but like they actually they did a good job of showing him sort of doing good deeds when no one else was apparently sort of looking yeah you know what i mean yeah Um, definitely so yeah it's uh it's quite i think they did a a, a, they did a good job with it um and 
yeah, uh, his his sort of his turn at the end. Damn, I mean, and the mask comes off. Yeah, kind the of mask thing. comes off. Um, that hit hard. That hit real hard. Okay, uh, Moana nineteen. Uh, sorry, not nineteen. Nineteen sixty four. No, uh, twenty sixteen. <laughs> Moana. Um, I, I mean, there are two antagonists here. Obviously, we have uh, Tamatoa, who's the the crab. Yeah. Um, but the main antagonist is uh, meant to be Takar, who actually turns out to be Tefiti. Yeah. Uh, sorry about my short notes here, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I found interesting here is, yes, you do. You obviously have the, the crab, etc. Mm. Um, and there are minor antagonists and things that get in the way all along. And Moana is very much a quest for identity and for, you know, accepting responsibility and accepting the right type of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I particularly found interesting was that the villain, the, the overall big villain is not really a villain at all and it's that classic one way of defeating your enemies is to turn them into friends by understanding them yeah which disney hadn't really done before yeah i I think the thing is that takar as a character you know looms long throughout the series as the as the ultimate threat throughout you know takar's introduced right at the beginning um, and Takao obviously is the thing that sort of gets between Moana and Maui um, when Takao almost breaks Maui's hook. Uh, you know, so Takao is actually a really frightening figure. Um, and I just really, really like this idea of Takao not actually being a villain, um, but Takao being the, you know, the expression of of grief and anger from someone who has been robbed and robbed by humanity i don't adhere to this idea some people have said oh it's a metaphor for male violence and only a woman can heal another woman i think that's rubbish Uh, i don't think that's the case at all um i think it's because maui was acting on behalf of humanity i think it's it's more of a metaphor for the balance of sort of the ecological world and the way that humanity has robbed the ecological world without thought and then is surprised when there are you know there's a there are consequences of that global warming is a consequence of us not paying attention to you know the impact that we're having and for me that's what Takai is and that it was about humanity returning and acknowledging what had been done in order to to heal this wound and Takai is not a villain Takai is a wound yeah I completely agree with that mm. um and I I don't know the whole sort of like only a woman can heal another that's a bit of a reach yeah in my opinion that's somebody going in and looking at it very specifically with their own agenda uh, yeah um, I I agree and I also think it's it's unfair because it it, it also as has been sort of raised um it it adds to this idea of, you know, indigenous um, and, and Polynesian men being violent or things like that, um, which I just I just don't like it at all. And it, it for me, it fails to understand what Maui's role was within the mythos of the movie, which yeah, is that absolutely. he was doing it for humanity. He is a representative of humanity and humanity's endless greed. Yeah, 
absolutely uh, that makes far more sense to me personally um i think we i i worry when people put those sort of interpretations over the top because what you generally find is that they are serving their own agenda and what their own agenda often is is making a certain group of people more marginalized not less Mm. and saying that these people are always the victims yeah and you know pasting a victim mentality on any group of people is incredibly damaging and we should definitely not do it i mean i think we are affected obviously we we take in media through the lens of our own experience so i can understand why someone perhaps who has been through a harrowing experience might see the film and feel this i i understand this i relate to this on that level i can understand that um but I just don't think that that's what the film at large is actually trying to portray. And that if we only see it in this manner, if we only read it in this manner, um, we're yeah. actually doing an injustice to to other people. Yeah, to try and say that your experience is everybody's experience and everyone must conform and there's no other way of interpreting it is, is the bit I object to, I yeah. think. I mean, I I am totally for people interpreting and interpreting movies in the way that they, in whatever way they wish. Um, I think that's a cool idea, um, but I just think you do need to sort of really consider it very carefully. And as I said, we are we are also victims to our own experience, and the way that we interpret movies and stuff like that will be based on what we have been through ourselves. So. Yeah, I'm not going to say, uh, no, this interpretation is... You're wrong to have this interpretation. I will say that I just don't think that is what the story is actually about. No. Okay, um, our last one for the list. Obviously, there have been other Disney films, um, but I think we should probably draw it to a close. So the last one we're going to finish off with is the 2016 Zootopia. um, And we obviously have the antagonistic figure of Bellwether. Yeah, um, an interesting choice, really. I mean, obviously, Zootopia is talking a lot about sort of preconceptions and prejudice, if not outright racism. Yeah. And the idea that certain races are more naturally violent. So, you know, this potentially could have been a disaster and been very close to the knuckle. But instead, I found the entire film incredibly uplifting and really charming. I mean, (laughs) I... Yeah, go on. I was going to say, and again, you've got effectively the small and weak and, you know, the unlikely being the person who actually kind of saves everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, at its core, that it was this idea of, oh, yeah, they're inherently this violent and we're going to push them into a situation and force them to be this violent to prove our point. Yes. Um now I've I've seen criticism regarding Zootopia and the way that it's being used as a metaphor, um, which I can definitely understand. So I'm I'm not going to get into that. I will say that the bellwether villain for me worked because uh, she was she she really really did feel like a not not a she wasn't a Karen but ultimately she was a bit of a Karen. <laughs> Yeah, to oh. me, Bell- Bellwether feels like, um, and there's any number of examples of these people on mm. Twitter or other places on the internet, the person who is so absolutely certain they're right mm. and they're putting their opinion out there, often in quite an insidious way mm. and presenting it as a fact. 
that's that's who she came across and it fit for me yeah i've seen criticisms of zootopia and it's like you know what people are entitled to their own opinions i personally don't agree with an awful lot of those criticisms but i can see where you're coming from and you know you're entitled to your own opinion as i'm entitled to mine but bellwether as you say kind of a karen but also kind of all those people out there who are again pushing their own agenda and often in quite a damaging and insidious way i think because i think the thing that sort of resonated with me is that she was someone who played the victim card yeah she played the victim card and for me i've seen that in people who are turfs for example you know i'm just a weak woman you know how I've can seen i trust it. you you know I what i've I mean? seen it in every single group out there it, it, yeah. you know no matter what i've seen somebody do it yeah no matter what group they're from, no matter whether they're on the right or the left, I've definitely seen them do it. Yeah, and these are people who are, are usually, you know, they, they play it out as like, I'm just small, I'm just weak, I'm just trying to protect myself and think about other people. And it's usually they are the ones who are pushing violent ideologies, hate speech, things along those lines. Um, and yeah, so Bellwether sort of that that hit hard i i felt she was a believable villain she's manipulative um she has used her looks and her status i mean she she very much is is the manipulative white woman you know uh or the who, manipulative any other race woman yeah no i know kind but, of like playing into yeah no absolutely but uh, like i i guess i saw her in a very sort of particular way um and yeah i i think that she as a character she worked well as a villain she felt very believable yeah yeah definitely um in some ways probably worse than any of the other villains who had clear and visible agendas at some point in the movie Mm. and again she's another one of those ones who you can't reason with that yeah because again it's that utter conviction that i am right i am the wronged party here that what i'm doing is correct yeah absolutely Okay, so um, let's talk about our sort of our favourite villain moments and our opinions on the most effective villains. Yeah, I think um, just to clarify, effective villains doesn't mean somebody who's who wins or who manages to scare us the most or whatever, but someone who you genuinely could see that why they were a villain and why they were. I mean, I suppose in that respect, Bellwether is probably one of the most effective villains. Yeah. She's representative of about 75% of the internet, for example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I I can very much, yeah, say that she wasn't a very effective villain. I felt, you know, Judge Frollo, again, very, very effective villain in that way. Um, um, Mother Gothel yeah. as well. Ga- yeah, uh, Gaston, Gaston as well, to a certain extent. Prince yeah. Hans is kind of like Gaston Mark II. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Gaston, but he's managed to keep it inside. I mean, also Scar as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know the weirdly the less effective ones in some ways, even though they're effective in terms of the storytelling, mm. are the ones who are just kind of like, yeah, I want to torture animals for yeah. whatever reason, or I want to poach animals, um, because that's that's a closed loop. Yeah, I guess, and there's there's not very much more than okay. Well, that's what you think, and we, uh, you and I, are on on opposite sides, kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas with Ursula, as we've said before, we can kind of see where she's coming from, 
with mm. Hades, you can kind of see where they're coming from. The Horn yeah. King is is just and the Horn King, and T- the Horn King and Tefiti is basically yeah they're forces of nature and you need to respect those things yeah. and they're not always out for your good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so the best villain song. <laughs> The best villain song is Heaven's Light slash Hellfire. Yes. From The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It is the most terrifying song. It really, I mean, it hits hard. There's so much in there. I mean, also, but the the visuals as well. Um, yeah, I mean, oh God. It's, it's brilliantly done. I was going to say, you know, I think Runner Up for me is probably some excellent, another excellent villain song. Um, Scar obviously gets a mention. Be prepared, yeah, definitely. Be prepared. Um, Dr. Facilia's friends on the other side, I think is just that's just a good jam, to be honest. Yeah. Um, Mother Gothel's mother knows best. Oh, yeah. yeah. It brings me out goosebumps, but yes. Every single time. I just think, particularly the reprise, um, you know, where she's basically saying, oh, you're all grown up now. Well, don't come crying when he's lying mother knows best you know i i that, damn i mean that is a really good that's a good one it hits yeah. hard so um, yeah just going back to george frollo though um as we've said he's actually a really really accurate portrayal of frollo from the book i mean the frollo in the books is less outwardly cruel but it mm. is there and mm. definitely wants esmeralda but sort of battles with his own sexuality a lot more yeah um but in you know you've got Quasimodo singing basically about heaven's light about that he hopes that he could be out there and someone might love him as he is Mm. um and then in stark contrast you've got Frollo who doesn't want to love anybody and just has this intense sexual desire for Esmeralda Mm. and it's a very selfish sexual desire as well he wants to own her he wants to kind of tame her I think there's some part of him that wants to break her spirit and make her his property yeah and the fact that he's willing to hang her i mean in in the book he's actually willing to torture her yeah um very medieval torture devices too he crushes her foot in one of those iron boots um rather than let her just be be free and it's all mixed up with this sort of the racism against the romany people as well and various other things it's just incredibly multi-layered and very very disturbing yeah yeah so yeah i think his hellfire i mean that hits hard but in terms of more recent stuff mother gohol uh dr fallier um i wish you were in the same more recent stuff well you know what i meant to me the hunchback of notre dame is one of disney's more recent films jules no But it's not, is it? It's 24 it's years ago. It's oh my god. It's 1996. Come on, Jules. <laughs> I'm going to go away and cry for a bit. Okay. <laughs> and there's me sort of like, no, this is recent. No, it's not. It's half your lifetime ago. I will say Prince Hans doesn't get a villain song, but if you listen to the audition tape for the voice actor, yeah. I really highly recommend it because he sang. Um, I feel pretty for his audition. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's just listening to Hans just go. I am pretty, oh so pretty. 
It's so oh my god, good. brilliant. I really, really recommend it. You can just hear everyone laughing. You can understand exactly why he got the job. Um, so yeah, okay, fantastic stuff. Um, all right, well, I think we have hit the end of the list there. We obviously didn't go through every single Disney film there. Is there any that we've missed that you think we really should be talking about? What's your favourite Disney um, Disney villain song? Please let us know. Remember, you can get in contact with us via our Facebook, our Tumblr, or our Twitter, both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendations of the week. And Jules, I believe that you've got one for us. I have, but... I'm actually not going to give the recommendation I Star Wars. I'm going to give people homework instead. Oh, okay. I am going to say, go through the list that we've just given you or, you know, whatever else and pick one or two, rewatch them and really look at the villains and think about how they're done and then come back to us maybe. Yeah. Because I don't, and you know, Disney kind of gets bad rap on certain things and, you know, with good reason, mm. but in other areas... It does better, I think, than than many other sort of animated feature film productions. So go look at the villains. Um, uh, my recommendation is obviously go back and look at The Hunchback of Notre Dame or <laughs> The Lion King. But, you know, pick your own and, and go from there. And we'd love to hear what you think. So yeah. instead of a, a dedicated wreck, we're just kind of recommending villains. Going, and, <laughs> go, go, going and looking at a Disney villain. Yes, please do. Let us know what you think. And on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.